Take your Bibles tonight, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Find the book of Matthew that begins the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you've been with us Wednesday nights, we're looking at living by principles, guidelines that would help every Christian in their life. Not necessarily doctrines, but guidelines and the last few that we've looked at is the principle of not looking back. Whatever's happened in your past, don't look back, go forward. Looked at the principle of feelings, principle of worry, principle of generous living, the principle of weights, and then last time the principle of eternal investments. And you know you can either invest in the earthly or you can invest in the heavenly when you decide you're going to invest in one, that prevents you from investing that same thing in the other. And we found that if you decide you're going to invest what you have in the Lord's, then you will get criticized for it. And then we looked at some of the investments. Tonight we're in 1 Corinthians 6. And if you would follow as I read verse 19 and 20, very familiar verses, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for each one that's here. Lord, we pray that you'd help our children the other end of the building, that those teachers would be able to Relay to them the importance of living for God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see that too. And Lord, again, we thank you for all your blessings, all of your provision. Would you help us tonight to understand another principle to live by? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that 1 Corinthians was written by Paul. We know he wrote it to a church that he started. And the church that he started was in the city of Corinth. And I don't think that there was any church that Paul started that had more problems than this church in Corinth. We know that almost every one of the 16 chapters that Paul wrote, he was correcting some kind of a problem. Well, look there, if you would, in 1 Corinthians 6, back up to verse 9. Paul reminds those believers what, what some of them used to do before they got saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul writes, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. And now he begins his list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor abusers, of, or, nor abusers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, verse number 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he has described 10 kinds of lost people. And he said to these people, he said, many of you live that kind of lifestyle before you got saved. But look there in verse number 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so Paul says, some of you were just like that, but you're not like that anymore. God has saved you. God has cleaned you up. God was the one that washed you and sanctified you and justified you. 
And uh, it's true that they could go back and live that way. And if they did go back and live that way, that wouldn't jeopardize their salvation. Look, verse 12. All things, now he's just made reference to all those different kind of lifestyles, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought into the power of any. So he's making the point, this is how many of you used to live. You don't live that way anymore because the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven you, saved you, redeemed you, justified you. You could go back and do some of those things, but it wouldn't be wise to, it wouldn't be expedient to, it wouldn't help you to grow in your Christian life. But then look at that uh, very next verse, verse 13. It talks about meats for the belly and the belly for meats. You see, Pastor, that kind of came out of left field. Not really, because that list of 10 sins in verse 9 and 10 were sins of the flesh. They were sins of the body. So, He's saying here, as a Christian, we don't get caught up with these things, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, because God shall destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so, again, he's taken the earlier verses in chapter 6 to talk about the fact that God has made a change in our life. And uh, you don't want to go back to the old way. And then from verse 15 to verse 18, he brings up a particular sin. Look there in verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Uh, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot, God forbid? So what he's going to say in verse 15, 16, 17, 18 is now that you're saved, you don't want to fall back into a life of immorality. He said, we don't want to do that. And I'm, I'm pushing through all of that to get again to verse 19. Pastor, why wouldn't we want to do that? Because of verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. And you know it's true that from the moment that we get saved, this body no longer belongs to us. It's no longer up to us to decide what things we want to do or don't want to do because it's not our body to begin with. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. He said, this belongs to God. And everything that we do from this point forward, it has to be a choice that God wants us to do because we now represent God. I'm going to give you a title if you're taking notes. And the principle tonight is the principle of a good name. The principle of a good name. You can let go of 1 Corinthians, look there, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter number 12. Again, we're looking this evening at the principle of a good name. Say, well, what does that have to do with how we conduct ourselves? Well, we'll see that in just a minute. Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. The Bible says, and when he had considered the thing, 
He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Not uh, but a few weeks ago, I preached on this text. And uh, as we looked at this text, we looked at this woman, Mary. Peter had been arrested. They had just killed the apostle James there in Acts 12 too. Peter was arrested. They had him in prison waiting till after Easter had passed, Acts 12, 4. And while Peter was kept in prison, look at verse 5, Acts 12 and verse 5. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So while Peter is locked up, the church folk are praying. Thank God for a praying church. And uh, as they're praying, in answer to their prayer, God sends an angel. He wakes up Peter, who's sleeping in prison. He tells him to rise up, but the chains fell off his hands, verse 7. That angel guided him through the first gate and the second gate, and finally through the iron gate. We find that in verse 10. And Peter comes to the home of some of the church people that are praying Look again at Acts 12 and verse 12. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. He has come to the... That was verse 13, verse 12. And when he, Peter, had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now, the reason I read verse 12 is going to kind of sound odd, but this home belongs to Mary. And Mary has a son whose name was John, and his surname was Mark. Help me. What's a surname? That's a last name. So his first name was John, and his last name was Mark. His mother's first name was Mary, and her last name was Mark. And so could I start with this? Every one of us enters this life with a name. Every one of us enters this life with a name. You didn't pick it. Likely, your parents picked it for you. And here we have a young man whose name was John Mark. And again, it stands to reason that uh, if his mother's first name was Mary, that uh, her full name would have been Mary Mark. How many are with me so far? Do you know that uh, the Mark name was a good name. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I said to you that, first of all, each one of us enters this life with a name. It's not always a good name. I think you'll understand when I say this, but there are some names of people in this town that when their name is mentioned, it's not a good name. They have established, if I could say this, a bad name. I remember when my wife and I first moved to town, 1990, we began to knock on doors, invite folks to church. And we would come back to the church folks and say, listen, we just met a man named... Sometimes some of our people said, Pastor, you need to be careful about that family because that name is not a good name in this city. How many understand what I'm saying? Everyone in this life enters with a name. Some of the names are good names. Some of the names are not so good names. John Mark didn't pick his name. 
I don't know how long it took him to realize, but he had been born into a good name. Mark was a good name. That was a good family name. You say, well, Pastor, how would you know that? Well, for one, very simply, the Mark family, verse 12, had opened their home up for an all-night prayer meeting. So they were sympathetic to the spiritual needs of that church. I say to you, this family name Mark was a good name. He had been given the name John Mark. He didn't pick it. But again, I say to you, each of us enters this life with a name. Pastor, why else would you say that the Mark family name was a good name? Keep your hand in Acts 12. Look over there, if you would, in Colossians chapter number 4. Colossians chapter number 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's right before the book of 1 Thessalonians. Colossians chapter 4 and uh, verse number 10. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul is giving a listing of his co-workers. Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. And Marcus, that's this John Mark's sister's son to Barnabas. Now, you might have to read that three or four times to get it figured out. But the mother of the Mark home, who's Mary Mark, she was the sister of Barnabas. Barnabas, of course, was the first partner of Paul on his first missionary journey. And so Barnabas had some spiritual inclination. But not only that, you can let go of Colossians, keep Acts, but if you would look there in Acts chapter number 4, Acts chapter number 4, Acts chapter 4, as we read in that chapter, we find that uh, there were some believers that had some great needs. Acts chapter number 4, and uh, look there in verse 32. And the multitude of them, that's the believers in the Jerusalem church, uh, that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, I read all that to say that in Acts chapter 4, the Jerusalem church became a very generous church. And if somebody in that church had a need, others in that Jerusalem stepped right up and said, we can help. It was a very generous church. And at the end of verse number 35, we're given an example. Look at Acts 8, verse 36. And Jose, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite in the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it seems like I've gone a long way around the mulberry bush, but that's the same Barnabas who nine years later, his sister opens her home for an all-night prayer meeting. I'm trying to say that the Mark 
family name was a good name. We're trying to chase down the principle of a good name. There are some here tonight, you were born into a family that has a good name. Your parents, your parents' parents, maybe even one or two generations beyond that, had established for themselves a good name. I say to you, first of all, each one of us enters this life with a name. Some are good names, some are not good names. Uh, we find here that uh, long before um, some were born, they were, had a family name that had a good reputation some, uh, they were born, before they were born, uh, they, they became part of a family that had a bad reputation. I'm just trying to nail this thing down. We all were born with a name. I remember hearing my mom say this many a time. Carlson's don't do that. Now, how many heard your, I know it would have been Carlson, but how many have heard your parents say something like that? A few. In other words, you were about to do something probably I shouldn't have. For me, it was my mom that said, oh, no, no, no. Carlson's don't do that. You know what she meant by that was we are doing everything we can to uphold our Carlson name. Pastor, is a name really that important? The Bible says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Bible also says a good name is better than precious ointment. And so if you were favored by being born into a family that had a good name, you started off two steps ahead of many other people. First thing we learn about the principle of a good name, each one of us enters this life with a name. Look there in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Look, if you would, at verse 57. Acts chapter 7 and verse 57. The Bible says, Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. You didn't know the Bible. Who is the him in that passage? Sorry? Stephen. Stephen was about to be stoned outside of the city of Jerusalem. Look there in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. If you're unfamiliar with all of this, again, it's talking about this man in the Jerusalem church named Stephen. Back up, if you would, to Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Here in the Jerusalem church, they were having problems. That's not unusual for any church. Every church goes through problems. What kind of problems were they having? Acts 6 and verse 1, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, the church is growing, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So that church is growing. It could very well be that they had over 5,000 people in that church, maybe 10,000. And uh, some were complaining that uh, the widows in the church were being neglected. 
Well, this was brought to the twelve apostles. Look at verse 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So they came up with an answer for this problem. Verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, we know that this was the first choosing of deacons. But what the apostles said was, we can't stop what we're doing to take care of this need. So we're going to have to point others that will specifically take care of this need. And that was deacons. Look there in verse number five. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. And so really, verse number five is our first introduction to Stephen. I mean, you're with me so far. We don't really know too much about Stephen. We know that he must have fit the qualifications that were given, but we really don't know too much about him firsthand until we keep reading. Look there in verse number 8. Bible says, "...in Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Up till verse number five, all that we had was the name. Stephen. As we continue reading, though, we learn more and more about this man, Stephen. When we get there to verse number eight, we find out he's a man of faith. When we get to verse eight, we find he's a man of power. We read the rest of verse 8, we find out that he can do great wonders and miracles. Now we have more than just a name. As we continue reading, look at verse 9, Acts 6 and verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now if you follow... Everybody starts with a name. We already declared that we determined that point number one. We're now looking at an example. Stephen started with a name. But you know, he slowly began to establish what his name was really all about. He's a man of faith. He's a man of power. He's a man of wonders. He's a man of miracles. Verse 9. He had some that opposed what he's trying to do. We don't have time to look at all those names in verse number 9, but Alexandrians, Alexandrians were out of Egypt and they notorious were for correcting the word of God. Libertines are notorious for thinking I can do anything, I have liberty. It was the left wing of religion that was fighting against this man Stephen. As we continue to read, look at verse 10. We're trying to learn more about Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. I'm trying to say that in verse 5, all we had was his name. As we continue to read further, we find more and more about his name. If you're taking notes tonight, our first point is every one of, each one of us enters this life with a name. My second point is everything that we do in this life establishes our name. 
Again, everything that we do in our life establishes our name. So just because you might have been born into a family with a good name, that's no guarantee that you are going to keep that good name. As you begin to live in this world, the choices that you make and the decisions that you make establish your name. Until finally when we get to chapter number 7, they hate Stephen so much, they pull him before a council. And Acts chapter 7, everywhere, everything from verse 2 all the way to verse 50, Stephen is giving a pretty detailed account of what happened to the nation of Israel. Then he makes application. Look at verse 51, Acts 7, 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so did ye. And they blow a gasket. <laughs> they are furious. I'm trying to say that our first introduction to Stephen was just a name. But in time, he established a good name. If you have been given the privilege of being born into a home with a good name, there is no automatic that you will retain that good name. Every choice, every decision, every statement is either going to establish for you a good name or it's going to establish for you a bad name. And so ultimately at the end of chapter number 7, Stephen is stoned. But even when Stephen is stoned, look there in verse 56. Verse 56, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. Then they, that's the ones that are stoning him, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. And verse 59, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, uh, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. What an incredible spiritual man. All we knew was a name in Acts 6, 5. But as his life unfolded, everything that he did established a good name. Let me show you another example of that same thing. Uh, you're there in Acts chapter 7. Look there in verse 58. Acts 7 and verse 58, and cast him out of the city. So this is when Stephen is being stoned and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. That is now the first time that we read that name, Saul. If all that we had in the Bible was up to verse 58, we wouldn't know whether that was a good name or a bad name. You say, well, he's standing there when Stephen was stoned and people laid their clothes at his feet. We don't know if he just happened to be there. And he was cornered when people took off their outer robes. We don't know. All he started with was a name. Look at Acts 8 and verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Now we have more than a name. Now we find out that he wasn't just accidentally there. He was there at Stephen's stoning on purpose. 
And from Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, this man Saul, who all we had was a name in chapter 7 and verse 58, now we're going, beginning to see really what kind of a name that he has. Look at Acts 8 and verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And so as we begin to read more and more about this man Saul, we find he has a bad name. I'm repeating so you get it and so I get it. All of us start in this world with a name. Some of us had the benefit of being born into a family with a good name. Maybe some didn't have that benefit. They were born into a family that had a bad name. It had a reputation in town and it wasn't a good name. Whatever kind of name you might have started with, it's every decision that you make as your life proceeds that either establishes your name a good na as a good name or establishes your name as a bad name. And you don't automatically keep the reputation of the name that you began with. Uh, secondly, everything we do in this life establishes our name. Well, when we get there to Acts chapter 9, look at it if you would. In Acts chapter 9, it says there in verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. It's getting worse and worse. He is now looking for permission to go absolutely anywhere he can to hunt down and imprison Christians. In fact, he even got permission to go to Damascus. If we had a map here, if you have the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River in Jerusalem, folks, Damascus is way up there. It's just, it, it, would be like, it would be like you and I trying to get permission to go as far as Vancouver. That's a long way away. And that's exactly what Saul wanted. He was willing to go anywhere and everywhere to arrest Christians. And you know what happened on his way? He's almost at Damascus. Look at verse 3, Acts 9, verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he, Saul, said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted is his hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Do you know somewhere between verse 5 and verse 6, Saul got saved. That is where we would place the salvation of Saul. After he got saved, he said, Lord, what's next? Look at verse 6. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, that's the city of Damascus, it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. And so Saul, he's a new Christian, just been saved, not even saved a day. And he is obedient to what God tells him to do. Look at verse 10. While God was working on this new believer, Saul, there's a man in the city of Damascus, Acts 9, verse 10, and there was a certain disciple of Damascus 
named Ananias said unto him, uh, sorry, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. I know you know the story. Saul gets saved between verse 5 and verse 6. He is a new man. But by the time we get to verse 10, 11, 12, 13, God tells a Christian named Ananias, I want you to go to a street called Straight. Justice owns a house on that street, and I've told Saul of Tarsus that you're coming to talk to him. Ananias doesn't even know he's saved yet. And I said, but Lord, I have heard many things and evil things of what this man's done. You said, Pastor, that's not fair. Why is it that Christians don't give new converts a chance? First of all, he didn't even know he was a new convert. But second, Saul, all those years, had established a bad name. It's going to take a little while to change people's impression of a bad name. If you're taking notes, here's the third thing to write down if you would. A bad name will not be, sorry, a bad name will not easily be erased. A bad name will not easily be erased. We're chasing down the principle of a good name. Say, Pastor, I was born into a family with a good name. Good for you. But you don't automatically keep that. As you make decisions in this life, it's either going to establish your good name or it's going to cost you that good name and it's going to establish a bad name. If you've established a bad name by bad choices, the third thing we learned here is every bad name will not easily be erased. Pastor, all people can do is remember what I used to be like before I say I got saved. Well, that's human nature. Say, so, well, does that mean my reputation can never be changed? Yeah, it can be changed, but it's not automatic. Look here in Acts 9 at some of the things that Saul began to do to change his name. Acts chapter 9 and verse number 19 and when he had received meat, he was strengthened, then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. This man, Saul, that's just recently got saved, he's not just going to a synagogue. That'd be a great thing. He's actually preaching Christ in the synagogue. Now, I'm trying to make some sense here. Pastor... I was blessed by being born into a family that has a good name. The preacher, as I began to live my life, I made some choices that established for me a bad name. I stopped doing things that I was taught. I, I stopped doing things that I was instructed. 
I stopped keeping commitments that I'd always kept before. Preacher, can I never change now that bad reputation that I've established? Sure you can. But you are going to have to go a second mile to convince people that you're not still that character that you have established. So Saul didn't just go to the synagogue. Saul says, I'm going to have to do more than what everybody else is doing. He went to the synagogue, and when there was an option to preach, he took it. I'm going to elaborate now. When there was an option at a ministry, he took it. When there was an opening in a Sunday school class, he wanted it. When the preacher asked, we're looking for a young man to preach eight minutes, write my name down. When they were looking for ushers, Saul said, I'll do it. When they were looking for someone to hold up gospel tracts, I'll do it. He said, Pastor, why did he go so far overboard? Because that's what's going to take to reestablish a good name. I close with this last one. Pastor, we all start with a name. And from that point forward in our life, everything that we do establishes our name. Third, a bad name will not easily be changed. Can I give you the last thing? Look there in Acts chapter 11 and verse number 26. Acts chapter 11 verse 26. After Saul was preaching there in Damascus, uh, he was preaching so zealously they wanted to kill him. So he went to his home in Tarsus. He was in Tarsus for about seven years. His uh, friend Barnabas, that man Barnabas, went up to Antioch to start a church. Antioch church was growing so fast, Barnabas knew, I have to get somebody to help me. And what Barnabas did is he went to Tarsus to find Saul. Look there in Acts 11, verse 25. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch, and it came to pass the whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Could I give you the last point? The, mo the most important name we'll ever earn is Christ's name. The most important name we'll ever earn is Christ's name. This is the very first time someone's called a Christian. Never been used before. It was probably used in a derogatory sense. They probably were making fun of these people and saying, those people are so much like Jesus Christ, we're going to call them Christians. And so people use that term in a negative tone when they called these people at Antioch Christians. But these Antioch Christians fixed their tie fix their lapel, because to them it was the greatest compliment that they could be given. Folks, I can't speak for the home that you're born into. I can't speak for the kind of name that you started with. Because really, whatever name you started with, you don't automatically keep it if it's a good name. You don't automatically shed it if it's a bad name. It's the decisions that you make in life. Those decisions are what establishes your name. 
if because of bad choices in life you have established a bad name, you can change that. But you are going to have to go overboard and go a second mile in your efforts and your service to God to change that. But putting all of that aside, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have been given the best name ever. You're a Christian. And you want to live up to that name. Do you know God has higher standards for a Christian than anybody in this world. If you're a Christian tonight, God has high expectations of you. You can't justify what you're doing by everybody else is. You're a Christian. Remember my mom saying, oh no you don't, you're a Carlson. I think the Lord says, oh no you don't, you're a Christian. And may we wear that title, Christian, proudly. Do you know that new name, Christian, wasn't a burden to these disciples. They wore it as a badge of honor. Imagine people actually thinking that they were just like Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, the Bible has a higher standard. Truth is, the world has a higher standard. The world has a higher standard for Christians than many Christians have for themselves. If you haven't heard it yet, somewhere along the line, the world will say, but I thought that you're a Christian. Why would you do that if you're a Christian? We are Christians. Our behavior affects Christ's reputation. We are on the clock all the time. Bob Jones Sr. many years ago said there's no difference between the secular and the sacred for a Christian. All ground is holy ground. Every bush is a burning bush. And when you recognize that you carry this name Christian everywhere you go, the world won't be able to push you around because you don't serve the world. You serve Christ. I read this true story, John Galbraith. He was a great economist in the early 1900s. He was often called on by dignitaries and to help solve economic problems. And he wrote this, this John Galbraith wrote this about his housekeeper, her name was Emily. And he wrote, he said, one day I had a very wearying day, so I told my housekeeper Emily to hold all telephone calls because I was going to have a nap. And he said, shortly after I laid down, the phone rang. It was Lyndon B. Johnson from the White House. And on the other hand, President Johnson said, get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. And the housekeeper said, Mr. President, he's sleeping. And he told me not to disturb him. And Lyndon Johnson said, well, wake him up. I'm the president. I want to talk to him. And that uh, housekeeper, Emily, said, no, Mr. President, I'm not going to wake him up. I work for him, not for you. And you know, after this Galbraith opened or woke up and his housekeeper told him what had happened, he called the president back himself and he said he could scarcely control his pleasure 
for the president said, tell that woman that I want her here working in the White House. Because that housekeeper understood an important truth. She could be servant to one man only. And that was the man whose wishes she was going to follow explicitly. Her loyalties were to Mr. Galbraith alone. Folks, if you're saved, God has given us a new name. It's a Christian. And regardless of this world thinks, that is a great name. Let's not let the Lord down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this principle of a good name. Lord, maybe many of us were born into a family that had a good name. Maybe some were born into a family that didn't. But regardless, Lord, whether we started with a good family name or not, we don't automatically keep a good name, and we don't automatically shed a bad name. Everything that we do, every decision that we make, every side that we take establishes what our name's going to be. Lord, if a good name is rather be chosen than great riches, would you help us to have a good name? Lord, if, if any here have made some bad decisions, and because of it they established a bad name, it can be changed. But it won't be changed without a double effort. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to cherish the name Christian. It's a new name. It's a great name. Lord, may we recognize that our loyalties belong solely to you. No one else ought to be able to override what our Savior tells us to do. Help us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.